The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Climate change activists have taken over Earth Day. The annual April 22nd event is now really Climate Day with other environmental issues mostly pushed off the stage. For example, climate appeared 10 times on the earthday.org homepage last Friday. The first item on the Greenpeace USA homepage was a link to a new climate communications report. The United Nations International Mother Earth Day cited climate no less than seven times, pollution once, land once, and water and air was not cited even once. Even Friday's Google homepage doodle took you to a page that shows the supposed impact of climate change. In fact, climate change now dominates the entire environmental movement, sucking funding and energies away from tackling important short-term issues such as pollution and species at risk. Jay, do you think that environmentalists have made a serious mistake letting global warming extremists take over the movement? I absolutely do, Tom. There are real environmental issues that need attention, but uh, virtually none of them uh, get any attention anymore because it's all about climate change. But on the other hand, I believe the public is beginning to recognize the insanity, if you will, the arrogance that uh, man controls the thermostat of the earth. I recently wrote an article with my writing partner, uh, Terry Ciccioni, uh, pointing out the forces of the solar system that in fact control the climate of the earth. And I think that little by little will make the public understand how ridiculous it is. And it's incredibly exciting to probably have the the biggest name in the world as a climate uh, scientist with us, uh, Will Happer to discuss these issues. So uh, Tom, give Will a proper introduction. Yeah, I'd be glad to, Jay. We've invited Dr. Will Happer to be our guest today. Dr. Happer is the Cyrus Fogg Brackett Professor Emeritus of Physics at Princeton University and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. He's a specialist in modern optics, optical and radio frequency spectroscopy of atoms and molecules, radiation propagation in the atmosphere, and spin polarized atoms and nuclei. All of this, of course, is vitally important to understand the impact of increasing carbon dioxide on our atmosphere. Besides his work at Columbia University Radiation Laboratory and, of course, Princeton, where he was the Eugene Higgins Professor of Physics and the chair of the University Research Board, from 1991 to 1993, Professor Happer was Director of Energy Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. 
Professor Happer has published over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers and has received many awards for his work, including an Alexander von Humboldt Award, the 1997 Breida Prize, awarded by the American Physical Society for Outstanding Work for Experimental Advances in the Field of Atomic and Molecular Spectroscopy, and even the Thomas Edison Patent Award. Wow. So we got the right guy here to talk about radiation physics and the atmosphere. Welcome to the show, Professor Happer. Thanks very much, Tom. Well, I'm so excited to uh, have you with us today. And I've got a lot of exciting questions that I think will be amazingly educational to our audience that we're happy to say has been averaging about 30,000 listeners of late. So tell us how you and Richard Lindzen, in a recent article, decided to focus your distaste for the current climate change fraud on the historic Crusades. Well, I'm not quite sure which article you have in mind. It might be a uh, little primer that we wrote with Steve Coonan for uh, Judge Alsop in a you know, ninth court lawsuit in California, where we summarized what the facts were about climate and climate change and uh, uh, just to summarize them, my climate has always changed. It uh, will continue to change as long as the Earth exists. And emissions of carbon dioxide will have almost nothing to do with the changes in climate. They never have had much effect in the past, and there's no reason to expect them to in the future. And uh, I certainly know that better than most because that's my field is the radiation, the way radiation interacts with absorbing molecules and atoms in the atmosphere. While President Biden and his, I call it a cabal, re-entered the Paris Accord, once the Republicans take back the House in November, which they assuredly will, they will probably be able to limit the damage that can be on, the, on America as the House controls all expenditures. I know you were certainly disappointed when uh, you were happy when Mr. Trump took us out of the Paris Accord and certainly unhappy when Biden put us back in. What do you think uh, the impact may be on our activities relating to the Paris Accord when the Republicans take the House back this November? Well, that's an interesting question, Jay, because uh, even some Republicans have drunk the Kool-Aid, so to speak. And so if you look around, there are some quite eminent Republicans who uh, give at least lip service to the climate emergency and who want to limit emissions of CO2. And even some of them want a carbon tax. And so just because the Republicans take over doesn't necessarily mean that they will do the right thing. You probably remember that John McCain, the Republican candidate for president, was a big climate alarmist and, uh, and a number of others were, were pushing uh, quite stupid things. And so anyway, my fingers are crossed. I, I hope that the new Congress will do the right thing. And there are actually some sensible Democrats out there, too. And maybe they will join in. There are many Republicans that uh, buy into the alarmism, but I'm predicting a shift in the House of Representatives of as many as 50 votes. And considering the Republicans that are alarmists that you just described, I think uh, we will have a big enough majority 
to turn back the clock. One of the things that will fascinate our audience is hearing from you what it was actually like to work directly with Mr. Trump at the White House during his third year in office as his climate consultant. I understand you were limited in what you could achieve, but I doubt if our listeners have heard many people who have been face-to-face on many occasions with Mr. Trump and would really like to know what your experience was like. Well, Mr. Trump gets it. He, uh, in some of our first discussions, described the climate movement as a religion and said that we really shouldn't be pushing religion with with the federal government. And he was all in favor of uh, trying to educate the American people. In fact, he wanted to have something like a fireside chat with them about climate. Mm, His his advisors were horrified. They were sure he would lose the uh, Republican women suburban boat and stuff like this. You know, they uh, they don't like me you know, being questioned about what they've always deeply believed. <laughs> so in the end, despite Mr. Trump's good instincts, uh, we were unable to get anything done about trying to educate the American public that really there is no climate crisis. There will not be a climate crisis. More carbon dioxide is actually benefiting the earth. You can see that from crop yields and uh, forestry uh, yields increasing. So it's too bad. It was a uh, it was a good try, but didn't work. <laughs> what about the endangerment finding? Did he think about ending it, or at least having it revisited? Well, that was an EPA thing. EPA really fell down on the job when the endangerment finally passed in the first case uh, some years ago. If they had argued their argued the case a little bit better, I think that it would not have gotten through. But we've got it. And no one at the EPA then had the stomach to take it on. Everyone said, well, OK, we'll address it in the second term. We don't want to jeopardize the president's uh, chances for reelection. And I kept saying, no, let's do it now. But I, I just didn't have enough allies. I had some, but not enough. Mm-hmm. So is this the deep state that Jay talks about? Yes, yes. The deep state it really exists. It's really a threat to democracy. And we should take care of it one way or another. I'm not quite sure how to do that. It's very very difficult because deep state means lots and lots of people who vote in congressional elections and have patrons in the Congress. And uh, so it is not easy at all to uh, trim it back to what it ought to be, you know, to be public servants who are doing good for the American people right now. Many of them are just parasites. If President Trump comes back again for a second term, do you think he'll attack these, you know, the underlying problems, namely the endangerment finding and other things? Well, I hope he will. um, But he's his own man. He will make his own decisions. I didn't originally either give him much chance or think he would actually come back and for a second term. But frankly, the decision of Elon Musk to buy Twitter and open up free speech, I think, will uh, energize Mr. Trump. And he'll uh, very likely, I would say now, be favored to come back for a uh, second term. And I hope he'll face the issues more directly. 
I believe the deep state began around 1980, I would say. I was doing some work for EPA all through the 70s, and I watched all good intentions with regard to the environment be turned into socialist tendencies beginning in 1988, 1980. Uh, So that's about 40 years of which the people who joined the government were leftist socialist people who were more interested in politics than in doing good for the people. So I think we have a a big job in front of us to begin undermining their power that you experienced firsthand. But I am very optimistic we'll begin the road back come next November. How much of your belief in the negative aspects of climate change around the world do you think are based on science rather than on politics? Well, you know, there are no negative effects of carbon dioxide. If you try to measure anything in climate, there's no evidence that it's done anything to climate in the modern era, and there's no evidence that it had very much influence in the past either. It's true that during the last million years or so that when glaciers advanced, carbon dioxide went down, and when things warmed up, carbon dioxide went up, but it was always carbon dioxide was following the temperature of the earth. You know, presumably most of it was outgassing from the oceans when the oceans warmed and and was sucked back into the oceans when they cooled. You can tell that from the time delay between changes in temperature and changes in carbon dioxide. Temperature always changed first and then carbon dioxide followed. So there's no effect on climate that anyone has been ever able to measure. There's been a huge effect on agriculture. And so there's very, very good evidence that, for example, 40% of the increase in wheat yield in the United States, and it's big been a very big increase. 40% of that is due to more CO2. Some 30% of the increase uh, soybean yields is CO2 since 1940. So do we really want to go back to pre-industrial levels of CO2 and and throw away 40% of our wheat yield, 30% of soybean yield? And uh, it's far from saturated. If we put more CO2 in, the yields will increase even more. So I don't see why that's bad. It means that we don't need as much land. There's more land that can be uh, natural, forest and prairie, because we don't need as much to grow the food that we need. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. nothing bad about more CO2. It's really a benefit. And the people who emit CO2 should feel they're benefiting life on Earth. Mm-hmm. So what kind of time delay is there generally in the record between when it's warm and when CO2 is noticeably higher as a result? Well, the ice cores typically show around 800 years. Um, It's a little different in Greenland than in Antarctica, but there's no question that it's quite a long delay, hundreds of years delay between when CO2 comes out and when the warming that caused it uh, happened. Here's a far out question. If you go 800 years before when CO2 started to rise in the last couple of centuries, you're at the medieval warm period. So is it possible that the medieval warm period has contributed to rising CO2, say, only 200 years ago? Well, that's an interesting question. If you look at the 
ice core records of CO2 during the medieval warm period, uh, CO2 did go up a little bit, but it wasn't very much. I, I Best I remember, it was like 280 to 290 or maybe 295. So it was quite a small effect. But, you know, the ocean plays a huge role in this and ocean currents have very long time constants. You know, the thermohaline circulation has a time constant on the order of a thousand years. So mm-hmm. it could very easily be that we're seeing things happening today that were caused uh, a thousand years ago, perhaps hmm. during the medieval wow. warm period. Today's CO2 levels could be a result of warming in the medieval warm period or partly a result. Yeah, some of them, some of it could be. But, you know, it's really true, as uh, Alexander Pope said, or whoever it was, uh, that a, a little learning is a dangerous thing. The, this whole area is extremely complicated, you know, more than all of us realize, I'm sure, certainly mm-hmm. more than the alarmists realize. So uh, the ocean in particular, it, CO2 is not in equilibrium at all in the oceans. You know, if you go down a few thousand meters in the ocean, the CO2 levels go up tremendously. And that's because of the biological pump. You know, when the plankton and uh, surface uh, organisms die, many of them slowly sink down through the ocean. Of course, they're made of carbon. And so as they decay, they inject CO2 into the deeper levels of the ocean. So, you know, the deeper ocean, sort of mid-levels of the ocean are, are much higher in CO2 than the surface is or than the bottom water. The bottom water has come from mostly the Arctic, uh, and uh, there there is uh, less CO2 in the water than uh, the midwaters that are uh, produced by the uh, uh, decay of organisms that are filtering down from the surface. Yeah, since we're talking about oceans, can you tell us what do you think about the ocean acidification scare? I mean, we're hearing that it's global warming's evil twin. I mean, is it blown out of proportion too? Yes, of course, it's blown out of proportion. You know, if you go to the ocean and measure pH, it varies all over the place. Uh, A typical average value is about pH 8.1, which is somewhat alkaline, you know, neutral pH is 7. But at the same location in the ocean, the pH can vary from, say, 8.2 in mid-afternoon to you know, 7.8 or 7.9, which is much more than you would get from doubling CO2 in the atmosphere. And the reason for that variation is because of the growth of uh, uh, plankton during the day. Sunlight shines on the ocean and the the algae uh, eat up all the CO2 in the water and and the CO2 uh, is not there to neutralize the fundamental basicity of the ocean. Mm -hmm. And, And so the ocean pH goes up, you know, it gets more basic. Let me say a little more about the ocean. Yeah. The, you know, the ocean would be unlivable except for CO2. Very few people, people realize how basic the ocean is. If you took all the CO2 out of the ocean, the ocean pH would be around 13, as I recall, 13.4 or something like that, which is the same as household ammonia. You know, it would be unbearable for most oh, organisms. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, the only reason the ocean has a moderate pH is because of the CO2 in it. And so once again, we have to thank God for CO2 in the oceans uh, to neutralize 
some of the uh, alkalinity of the oceans. Yeah, the ocean is very, very alkaline. Yeah. I love to tell our listeners over and over again, I've been fortunate enough to travel during my naval career a little bit on submarines and the average CO2 concentration on a nuclear submarine that stays underwater at times for uh, many, many weeks is about 5,000 parts per million. And uh, I've seen it go up to 8,000 parts per million. And to my knowledge, not a single sailor has ever been sickened from uh, that level. So uh, there don't seem to be any downsides to CO2, just a lot of positives. And you have uh, added to that knowledge for the benefit of our listeners. No, you're right, Jay. You know, the submarine skipper will try to keep the level below 5,000. That's sort of the upper limit. It It causes no harm. You can't tell any difference if you're breathing 5,000 parts per million. But the submarine has uh, scrubbers on them, which uh, take the CO2 out and pump it out into the ocean, you know, regularly. You probably remember they, uh, they're kind of smelly. So when you get home after a few weeks, you smell like kitty litter for uh, several days. <laughs> it's hard, hard to yeah. get. The, it's because of the amines that they use to strip out the CO2. Yeah. I had a further question on the ocean situation. So ocean organisms can obviously adapt to the variation in pH that you were talking about. So even if we did have increasing, like less basic, actually not more acidic because it's all basic, then it sounds like they could adapt easily to the kind of forecast for future acidification. Oh yeah. Lots of experiments have done, have been done on this and, uh, Many organisms actually grow better with more CO2, which is sort of what you would expect, because even in the ocean, when the sun is shining, they, they uh, eat up all the CO2. There's not enough there. And so having a little more is good news for most of the life of the ocean. Hmm. Wow. Just like on land. <laughs> Just like on land. Exactly. Yeah. It is amazing. It's amazing that the alarmists have uh, vilified carbon dioxide, making the public think it's a bad thing. Yeah, that's right. When in fact, it's, it's, there is no bad to it. It's just one positive after another. There is, I'm sure, not a single listener here with us today that have not heard about climate models. And in fact, it's only climate models that offer evidence that increasing carbon dioxide is a bad thing and is going to warm the earth, having negative impacts. What, is, what motivates the people that create these models and are financed by the government to do so? And do they believe their own models? Well, Jay, that's a good question. I don't know enough climate modelers personally and intimately enough to know for sure whether they believe them. But different models give different results. For example, the, there's a Russian model that is pretty close to what we observe. It gives much less warming than the models in Europe and in the West. So you can get anything you like out of a model. You know, they're, they're very difficult to uh, construct. They have many adjustable parameters. Uh, you, you can't solve the basic equations exactly. So you have to make lots of approximations. 
And so you can basically get any answer that your sponsor will pay for. <laughs> what answer would you like, sir? <laughs> it reminds me of a funny story. Apparently, in the old Soviet Union, scientists would get additional bonuses when it was really cold in the far north when they were situated there. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, the bonuses stopped, and suddenly all the temperatures went up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. I, I don't know whether it's true, but it, it ought to be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The benefit of our audience when we talk about models we're basically talking about a mathematical equation that is supposed to simulate the way nature uh, works in controlling the temperature of the earth. And they have whatever variables people want to use. We have a, a colleague, Willie Soon, who once calculated that if you actually used all of the variables that could potentially impact the Earth's climate, the largest computer on Earth uh, would take many decades to come up with an answer because of the complexity of the math. So his point was the silliness of anyone believing they can draw up an equation with a handful of variables that is gonna give an answer. But uh, as Will just said, it's really about all the sponsor with the money wants to come out of them. I suspect, and I don't know that many modelers personally, the same as you will, but I suspect that uh, they talk themselves into believing them uh, in order to uh, accept the money to uh, come up with something and, and offer an answer. I think uh, in the heart of hearts, they actually don't believe them, but they're making a living at it. It's, uh, it's very yeah. sad. Yeah, on that note, we should take a break for a commercial. We'll be right back with Dr. Will Haffer, Cyrus Fogg, Brackett Professor of Emeritus of Physics at Princeton University. You've been in that situation. The person next to you is sniffling or worse yet, <clears throat> coughing. Flu, cold, and coronaviruses are everywhere. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to reduce these threats with an invisible mask as an additional layer of protection? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix RX, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs while protecting you from airborne pathogens that make us sick. America Out Loud listeners get 20% off. Use Cofix RX while in large groups, while traveling, or for any other type of high-risk situation as an additional layer of protection to help reduce your likelihood of catching a cold, the flu, or SARS-CoV-2 viruses. Right now, America Out Loud listeners get 20% off of all orders. Click our banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, 
and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. As Americans, we seek to form a more perfect union. To paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And God willing, we shall not perish from the earth. AmericaOutloud.com Liberty and justice for all. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. We're back with Dr. Will Happer, our guest today. Dr. Happer is a Cyrus Fogg Brackett Professor Emeritus of Physics at Princeton University. So, Jay, you had a question for Will Happer. Yes, uh, we understand that the portions of the atmosphere that can absorb CO2 are largely saturated with CO2, and adding more CO2 emissions uh, can really have little effect uh, on the greenhouse effect that holds heat into the earth. Could you explain how and what uh, does absorb the, uh, the CO2 allowing for a greenhouse effect? Thanks, Jay. The thing we're talking about now is thermal radiation. You, you can't see thermal radiation, but you can feel it. You know, if you stand by a fireplace, you can feel the heat coming out and it's clearly radiation, it's not that it's hot air coming to you. you it's, it's the heat from the fire. So thermal radiation. Now it turns out thermal radiation is like visible radiation. It has different colors. You know, so you can think about blue thermal radiation or red thermal radiation or, or green. And um, different uh, greenhouse gases absorb different colors of thermal radiation. And so you might say that CO2 absorbs the equivalent of green. It's right in the middle of the thermal radiation spectrum, just like green is in the middle of the visible spectrum that we look at. And there is so much CO2 in the air now that it's absorbed essentially and emitted. You know, radiation is not only absorbed, but emitted by greenhouse gases. That process is saturated now. So if you double CO2, it hardly matters. It makes about 1% difference between current CO2 levels and double CO2 levels. And the radiation goes out to space and keeps the earth cool. So only a 1% change, a very tiny. And um, to get a feeling for that, it's, it's very similar to giving a barn a nice coat of red paint. Uh, if you've done a good job, you have good quality paint. Uh, the barn will look nice and red. And uh, if someone says you haven't done a very good job, put a second coat on it. You're wasting your money. If you double the paint on the barn, it doesn't look any redder than it did with the first coat. 
And so our atmosphere today is like a barn with one coat of good red paint. That's the uh, CO2. And it, it's not going to matter if you double the amount of CO2. It's like an additional layer of paint on a barn that's already got a good layer of paint. Can we just repeat one point here? I think it's really critical. You're saying a doubling of CO2 would only increase the... Uh, increase it would decrease radiation to space by 1%. Yeah, 1%. Now, what would that do with regards to temperature? If the radiation decreases by 1%, that means that if the sun is heating at the same amount, that the sun will start to warm the earth up a little bit because more sunlight is coming in than radiation going out. 1% more, it's not very much. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that the uh, rate of emitting radiation goes as the fourth power of the temperature. You know, that's a big effect. For example, if you... I'm sorry to speak about mathematics, but for example, you take the number of two, which is doubling. If you raise two to the fourth power, that's two times two times two times two, that's 16. So this, this fourth power dependence means that you only have to change the temperature, the absolute temperature by a quarter of a percent. So if you decrease radiation to space by 1%, you only have to increase the temperature by a quarter of a percent. Well, the absolute temperature is about 300 Kelvin. A quarter of a percent of that is about, it's less than uh, one Kelvin, which is the same thing as a centigrade. So mm -hmm. doubling CO2 to first order uh, would not even be able to raise the temperature of uh, the earth by one degree centigrade. Mm. So you have to dream up all sorts of positive feedbacks to amplify this disappointingly small effect on the climate. Well, we have many friends, colleagues, who are certainly not alarmists, but they still spend a lot of their time writing papers, trying to come up with an absolute number of what the heating of the earth is when you raise carbon dioxide emissions, some number of parts per million. It seemed like a tremendous waste of time to me. And they don't often start off their articles by explaining that whatever calculation they come up with, they know it's inconsequential. And I'm afraid they open the door for alarmists to say, well, you're admitting there is some impact and maybe you're wrong on the number and it's much larger. I think they do us no service, but they feel like, you know, it's science and they got, have to be accurate. What is your opinion of that? Well, Jay, I, I think some quantitative arguments are important. I, I think very few people realize that doubling CO2 only changes radiation by 1%. You know, that's a 100% change in CO2, a 1% effect. You know, that's an important thing that most people don't realize. They don't realize that the alarmists have had to uh, tear their hair out to try and figure out how to make this non-threatening 1% look threatening. Mm -hmm. So, so I, I think it depends on people. You know, some people don't like numbers. I happen to like them <laughs> and they mean something to me. You just changed my mind. In that one sentence, you turn my thinking around to realizing that they're not doing harm, they're doing good to focus their answer on the irrelevancy of the impact of carbon dioxide. 
I hadn't thought about it that way. I'd been thinking more about, you know, opening the door for the alarmists. But what they are really doing with numbers is closing that door. Well, some of them are, you know, the honest ones are doing that. What do you think about the feedbacks, the positive feedback saying, oh, there'll be more water vapor and more clouds and that will amplify the warming so that it's dangerous. Do you think that positive feedbacks are also exaggerated? Well, Tom, you know some chemistry and uh, there's this famous Le Chatelier's principle, which says that most feedbacks in nature are negative, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So if it's a positive feedback, it would be very unusual it would probably have shown up in the geological record because CO2 is always changing in the geological past, but there's no evidence that there was ever a runaway positive feedback. So very likely whatever feedbacks are there for changes of CO2, they're most likely negative, just like all other feedbacks in nature. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I guess the history of the earth shows that what they're saying is almost certainly wrong. That's my reading well, I, think our, I, think our, our, I think our listeners could handle uh, one fun scientific explanation. Could you describe Le Chatelet's principle? Well, Le Chatelet's principle says that if you were to, uh, say, take a uh, chemical reaction and start adding heat, you know, to the mess of chemicals that you're you've put together. The chemicals would begin to react in such a way that they would lower the temperature. The, you know, the, the heating is trying to raise the temperature. The reaction lowers the temperature. An example is, how do you make steel? Well, you mix coke, which is carbon, practically pure carbon. Charcoal used to be the material of choice. You mix that with iron ore, which is iron oxide, and you start heating it. And it doesn't continue to get hot. In fact, what happens in the, in the steel furnace is that carbon dioxide starts to pour out as the carbon reacts with the iron oxide. And so instead of getting hotter, it simply emits uh, carbon dioxide. It remains relatively cool. And eventually you extract so much oxygen from the uh, iron oxide that all that's left is iron metal. And so you get a nice puddle of iron down at the bottom of the furnace that you can then use, you know, to make steel and do other things. That is, uh, is absolutely fascinating. There's another problem in the climate alarmism that I think few people are aware of, even though they, they should be, that they're actually as many as 6,000 products that are made as byproducts of uh, petroleum. And it's petroleum that the alarmists are trying to get rid of because it, when you burn it, you get carbon dioxide emissions. But that very same petroleum, I would warrant is in 80% of all the items in the rooms of which our listeners are listening to. And for some reason or other, when they try to eliminate carbon dioxide emissions from the burning of fossil fuels, they're reducing our standard of living at least a century backwards. And I don't think they understand that. What are your thoughts about that? 
Well, I think that fossil fuels have been an enormous benefit to mankind. You know, just as you say, they've given us a standard of living that kings could only dream about a few centuries ago. And uh, let me go further to say that we're basically the same material as petroleum. You're, we're made of carbon. <laughs> you talk about carbon pollution, the biggest carbon uh, source in the world in some sense is, is people. You know, it's, a, uh, I think, the third most abundant element in our bodies. And uh, that's the reason it's in petroleum in the first place, because it's the remains of life from, you know, many hundreds of millions of years ago that has uh, been transformed into these use, useful hydrocarbons. We store hydrocarbons too, you know, the fat in our body is a hydrocarbon. It differs very little from the uh, what's in uh, petroleum. <laughs> and we breathe out huge amounts of CO2, you know, every one of us breathes out two pounds of CO2 a day, you know, and what are there, 8 billion people in the world and multiply by two pounds a day, that's a lot of CO2. Is that really carbon pollution? Of course it's not. It's, it's a vital part of the web of life and thank goodness for it. Mm -hmm. it's, it strikes me that Republicans should stop calling it a carbon tax, should stop calling it carbon pollution. Anyone who supports real science should call these things carbon dioxide tax, carbon dioxide emissions. And, you know, it strikes me also that that's important because carbon people think of as soot. You know, something is black and dirty, whereas most people remember carbon dioxide, of course, is plant food. So, Will, it strikes me that we should not use their language. What do you think? Well, I think we should say carbon dioxide also, uh, you know, carbon pollution strikes me as a propaganda slogan, and it probably was dreamed up for that reason, just like climate change, you know, when it was pretty obvious that global warming wasn't happening. You know, they came up with climate change, you know, mm -hmm. and now every time there's a storm, they say, you, know, you could see, you can see that storm was caused by climate change, even mm -hmm. though we've been having storms throughout recorded history, and there's not the slightest evidence that there's more of them. But yes, you know, the, I think George Orwell said, if you're sloppy with language, then uh, that has very bad consequences. And uh, we're seeing that with the use of the word carbon pollution all the time, you know, carbon mm -hmm. footprint, you know, what nonsense, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, diamond yeah. is pure carbon, for example, as well as soot. <laughs> That's right. You know, and, and carbon monoxide, instead of being beneficial, is something you want to stay away from. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so we got to fight the language changes because according to various researchers, language plays a very important role in war, for example, and this in many ways is a war. If we adopt their language, we're yielding to the wrong idea that carbon dioxide is a problem. Well, you're right, Tom, and who was it? Winston Churchill talked about a, a bodyguard of lies. <laughs> and that's what we're seeing a lot in the climate area. <laughs> right, right. That, you know, brings me back. It's not <clears throat> related to our discussion with you, except that I haven't yet come down from uh, cloud nine in the last two days with my belief and recognition that uh, censored speech is about to come partially to the end because Elon Musk now considered the richest man on earth has decided to put part of his fortune into uh, bringing back free speech by buying a social media firm, Twitter, 
and opening it up to uh, anybody who wants to say anything. So that's kind of good news. And uh, it speaks exactly against all the terrible things that George Orwell wrote about in 1984 that the alarmists have actually been able to carry out by changing uh, the verbiage, just as you two have, uh, have just explained. Another thing that I had forgotten from my high school biology, geology, nature courses, you mentioned in an article that I read recently that you also, I believe, had written with Richard Lindzen, uh, you brought out the fact that everybody should know is carbon dioxide is necessary for photosynthesis for plants. An end product for our atmosphere is more oxygen, which is another good thing. Perhaps we should be talking more about that positive aspect of increasing the oxygen that we breathe. Well, I completely uh, agree that we, we have not stressed how beneficial carbon dioxide is for life on Earth. And indeed, plants do release oxygen. We're using a little bit of the oxygen and burning fossil fuels, but not enough that it matters. So the benefits of more CO2 are just enormous and, and very few people are aware of them. Well, I'm going to shock both of you, I think, by telling you something about carbon dioxide I would wager you do not know. I'm working on an article on the benefits of carbon dioxide within the human body. Uh, I've made a study of breathing down through the centuries and a kind of a lost art of the science. But while we think in terms of the importance of oxygen going to the cells in our body, virtually everybody is unaware of the fact that the carbon dioxide oxygen level within the human body is critical to maximizing health. Something I would doubt that um, Will or Tom know or any in our audience know, uh, but I hope within a few weeks to finish an article, which is ba basically a medical article that people don't understand, but how you breathe, generally it's best to breathe through your nose more than your mouth, affects the ratio of carbon dioxide and oxygen in your body. And uh, we actually need to retain a good deal of carbon dioxide in our body to maximize health. So it's uh, another, another benefit of uh, the emissions that have uh, been so demonized by the alarmists. Well, Jay, you're right that uh, carbon dioxide is uh, essential for uh, our health. And it's really the carbon dioxide levels in your blood that uh, stimulate the breathing reflex. It's not lack of oxygen, it's uh, crossing some threshold of CO2 in your blood. That's why, for example, hyperventilation is potentially dangerous because you strip out too much CO2 from your blood and you start feeling bad, you start feeling dizzy, you can even pass out, you can stop breathing because without carbon dioxide, the breathing reflex disappears and uh, your blood becomes much too alkaline also, you know, so I completely agree with what you said. I probably don't know everything that you found out, but I do know well, that it's it, very it, important. It, it sounds to me you've read the same material I have and I've made a study of it and everything you said was 
exactly correct and even uh, more precise. And that is exactly what I'm going to uh, be writing about. So it's just one more reason that carbon dioxide is all good, uh, not bad at all. Uh, you know, we really can't have not yet ever found a level of carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere that would be negative. I, I would imagine there, there likely is one. It's well up in the, uh, I'm guessing, in the tens of thousands, but nobody has, has ever yet figured it out. Your blood pH typically is around 7.6. And in many ways, your blood is very similar to seawater. So what that, one thing that may imply is that when animals involve, evolved, the CO2 levels were so much higher that the ocean pH was closer to 7.6 than to 8 or 8.1 today. So I guess the problem with more and more CO2 wouldn't actually be the CO2 itself. It would be the fact that it's displacing oxygen. Is that correct? That, that's correct. I mean, it, it's, you don't sense anything for a few thousand parts per million, but if you get up to four or 5%, then you start having problems because the, your exhaled breath is 4% CO2. <clears throat> And so you've got to be able to strip out the CO2 from your blood through your lungs. And so, so as long as the level is well under 4%, which is 40,000 parts per million, you're perfectly okay. So 5,000 mm -hmm. is no problem. Yeah, because I was a lifeguard. would start to be a problem. Yeah, I was a lifeguard and we had to practice. We did direct mouth-to-mouth -mouth respiration and none of our patients died on us. And you're saying that would have been 4% carbon dioxide, which would be, geez, a hundred times higher than what you breathe in, right? Yeah, but, but it's, it's also uh, quite a bit of oxygen. And so that's okay. Mm, okay, great. Well, in an article, I also read by both you and Richard Lindzen, uh, I think uh, Dr. Lindzen made a statement that I'd like you to speak to everybody in the audience has heard it before but they probably don't understand it. And the statement was, science is never settled. Could you explain this to our audience? People seem to think that science uh, is uh, fixed in stone. That's true of mathematics, Jay. For example, the Pythagorean theorem is as true today as it was thousands of years ago, and it'll be true for thousands of years to come. But that's not true of most of science, because most of science, we're trying to understand what nature does. And nature is pretty subtle, you know. It's not clear sometimes uh, what she's trying to do. So just in my own field of physics, which is the most exact of sciences, things like Newtonian gravitation, which seemed, you know, the last word when Newton wrote down the laws of gravitation, turn out not to be quite correct, Einstein pointed out that it really doesn't work very well for, say, even the planet Mercury, something that's pretty obvious, that led to the theory of relativity. And, and so even in the most fundamental of fields, the most precise of fields like physics, it's always changing. And so I expect it to continue to change. I expect big surprises to happen in the future. And that's true of other fields, even more so because they're less precise to begin with. So the idea of settled science is absurd. You know, you can have a 
a dogma in a religion and that's settled, you know, this is what we're going to believe. And uh, if you don't believe it, get out of here. But that's not true of science. So in fact, the idea that science is settled, that is anti-science itself. It really is anti-science, that's correct. Mm -hmm. In fact, the whole thing about a scientific theory is you're constantly trying to falsify it. This famous uh, philosopher of science, Karl Popper said that if a theory cannot be falsified, if you can't prove it wrong, then it's not a real scientific theory. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the problems with uh, climate science is you can't prove it wrong. But every time there's a thunderstorm, you know, see that proves that proves the climate is changing. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's impossible to falsify it. (laughs) So maybe we should ask the climate alarmists, what would be necessary to falsify your belief in dangerous man-made climate change? And if they have nothing, then their position is not scientific. Well, uh, they, they, of course, ask that of skeptics too, you know, mm-hmm. how can you be skeptical? What would be required to change your mind? You know? yeah. But, but, they're, but they're much, much worse, you know, yeah. they really are religious fanatics in many cases. Yeah, but being skeptical is part of being a scientist, surely. Absolutely. Well, Will, take out your crystal ball, if you will, and give us what your opinion would be on when and if the, what I call the climate insanity, might wind down to an end in the coming years. Well, Jay, I I don't know any more than you do, but my, my guess is that it will stop when some country or state does everything required of them by the climate zealots. They destroy their economy. They destroy their society. And it will be such a, a horror show that other parts of the world will learn that, gee, this was a mistake. Let's not repeat it. So I, I, I hope that doesn't happen. And I hope it doesn't happen to countries where friends of mine live. For example, it could be California, or maybe it will be Germany. <laughs> Who knows? Mm-hmm. But, or maybe but many of these crazy things, don't they, they don't get cured until there's a disaster. Yeah, well, it might be Ottawa. The city of Ottawa, where I live, has committed to spending $60 billion between now and 2050 to try to stop climate change. $60 billion for a city of a million. That's $60,000 for every man, woman, and child in, in Ottawa. And they're wanting to bring in 710 industrial wind turbines, you know, 60 stories high, 36 square kilometers of solar panels. I have friends in British Columbia who say, we hope Ottawa does that, because then when you're freezing in the dark, we won't do it. (laughs) Well, that that, uh, touches on, on the point I was trying to make that we may need to make these horrendous mistakes uh, to finally uh, wake people up. Mm -hmm. You know, in some sense, that's what cured, you know, this crazy eugenics movement, you know, that was so popular in the United States and Britain, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It's when the Nazis took it over and and carried it to the extreme. Mm -hmm. Uh, No kidding. You know, you you believe that? Well, so do we. And uh, (laughs) of course, it was it was all a fraud to begin with. It was full of, you know, massage data, dishonesty, but it looked like science. And there were eugenics clubs of women in every little town every Thursday they'd meet and wring their hands about the corruption of the you know, good old Anglo-Saxon race, you know, by 
all of these low IQ Italians and uh, Eastern <laughs> European Jews and Chinamen, you know, it, it's when you look back on it, it just looks absolutely absurd. But, and I'm sure that when people look back on climate as, as we see it today in 100 years, it will look just like the eugenics movement. Mm, wow. In our last two or three minutes, can you tell us what your future plans are? Is there a new area of study or you have new ideas and papers coming out? What are you doing next? <laughs> well, thank you. I, I am interested in, in the physics of climate. And so I'm actually working now with a uh, Canadian professor, William Van Weingarten, who's at uh, York University, and we're working on radiation transport in clouds, which is a very interesting topic. And uh, it's something where uh, we're learning a lot and having a lot of fun and developing the theory. Uh, that particular theory uh, started out with astronomy, with you know, astronomers trying to figure out how does energy get out of stars? It's carried by radiation and convection in some cases. But the way it happens in stars is quite different than from our own atmosphere. In, in stars, the, the scattering of radiation is in all directions. And uh, for a cloud, most of the light scatters in the forward direction. So there, there are some interesting physical differences that have to be efficiently handled with the mathematics that you develop. So that, that's what I'm working on now. Ah, that's very cool. That's really neat. Well, you know, this has been a fascinating interview talking about radiation, physics, and politics, and chemistry, and all sorts of things. This has been Dr. Will Happer, our guest, Cyrus Fogg Brackett, Professor Emeritus of Physics at Princeton University. So this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. Thank you.